Welcome to the School of Risk podcast where we have insightful, valuable and sometimes intense conversations on the various dynamics of risk taking in life and business. I am your risk champ, your host Chizuber Legudo and this is episode number 30. My guest on today's episode is Martin Harvey. Martin is the founding partner and CEO of Tori, T-O-R-I, a global consultancy company with offices in the UK and the US. His experience in technology, strategy and business models has helped some multinational companies achieve excellence through digital transformation, IT optimization and regulatory compliance. Today we'll be talking about the value of having a structured approach when delivering projects. We'll talk about managing risks and how you can present a good value proposition for your clients even when they don't know what they want. Martin shares his experience with us and also gives three valuable tips on how you can start as a small business and grow into a global brand recognized for your value. Let's not waste any more time on this and go to school. Martin, it's wonderful to have you here on the School of Risk podcast. Welcome to the show. I would like us to start by you introducing yourself. Let our listeners know who you are and what you do, and we'll build a conversation from there. And I can't wait to really get into this because your space is one of the spaces I spend some time in working with clients. Um, I'll let you do your thing, please. Go ahead. Lovely. Thank you very much. Well, who I am, I'm, I'm, I'm Martin Harvey. I'm the CEO of Tory Global, which is a management consultancy business doing transformation and change across the financial services sector. Um, prior to starting this business 20 years ago, I was a global CIO for three major banks, Society General, ING Bearings, and UBS. So probably done every role in transformation and change around technology. And in the last 20 years, been involved with all our major clients in banking, insurance, wealth, asset management sector in terms of helping them through transformation and change, whether that's people, business process or technology. Fantastic. Yeah, that's that's quite a that's quite a you know an achievement, Martin. Uh, what to get, you know, to just to understand a bit more, what took you down the path or what made you decide to go it on your own, so to speak, and start your own company yeah. from being a CIO. What was it in that experience that you had that made you think, you know what, I can do it better? Yeah, well, th- three things were the driver. One, um, I was living in Paris as the CIO for Society General, and my, me and my wife were living there as expats, and uh, I had a great time traveling the world. But unfortunately, my wife was at home, didn't speak fluent French, and therefore France became a problem for her. So she decided to relocate back to the UK. And so on the back of that, you know, I decided that my life was with my wife and I relocated back too and decided because I had a fantastic job at Society General that I wanted to do something different. And through my experiences of being a CIO of three major banks, using consultancy services from all the big firms as well as some of the smaller ones, I felt there was a niche in the market to create a a USP around real practitioner-led consultancy capability. So most of the 
activity that we get involved in involves people that are practitioners that have come from inside the industry. They're not necessarily the best PowerPoint providers, but they're pretty good at the execution and the delivery. So very much a, an experienced practitioner-led model with a focus on financial services because that was my background and where I came from. And I started the business with a guy that that basically ran a people transformation business, you know, leadership management, culture change. And so he was part of the team that started the business. So we actively got involved in, obviously, the people side of change, obviously, the business process side of change, and then, obviously, the technology side. Fantastic. I love what you said there about, you know, your life was was your wife and you decided to move that. So it's important to always have that um you know, uh, you know, they call it work-life balance, but knowing what's important because I always feel that when you are whole as a person, everything is fine at home. You can deliver better services, better value and all that. But if your wife wasn't happy and all, you get all that, you know, tension at home, that's going to influence what you do. So I like that you yeah. do that. You put, her, you put her first, which is quite great. And I yeah. also love what you said because I've seen this as well. You know, you, you give them a term, but I call them PowerPoint pushers. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the PowerPoint pushes, you know, they present, you know, and you find this with, you know, I'm being honest, you know, with a lot of the large consultancy firms, they present, you know, beautiful presentations and all that. But when it comes to delivery and all that, you know, they miss the mark. That takes me to my next questions. My next question. So large consultancies like the big four we've just talked about versus small companies like yours who delivers the better value and why would you say so well i'm going to say companies like mine right because i'd be i'd be i'd be in the wrong job if i said <laughs> i would say the same thing <laughs> <laughs> but, but to just put a little bit of more substance on on that i guess three things and i always think three is a good good set of things to put against a, a question like that firstly the value add is that that we we're comfortable working on a fixed price outcome based risk reward basis, which a lot of the big consultancy firms are. They do do it, but they're less, I guess, forward in that as a proposition. So, firstly, it's it, the value is we get in the boat with you, and we're rowing the boat with you. It's not just on a T and M buying a, the bodies from us. Number one. Number two, our model's upside down from the big consultancies, whereas they would have a lot of junior consultants and mid-range consultants that obviously are are underpinned by the partners. We have the senior people and very few what I would call junior consultants in terms of underpinning the business. So what you get is that experienced practitioner, not the junior practitioner with oversight from the 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 partner or the senior consultant so very much a an experience model which helps obviously make us different from what i would call the big four and i think thirdly you know we only focus on what the client's needs are we're not trying to sell a whole set of services we know what the market we're meeting with over a hundred clients a month and on the back of that you're getting good intel in terms of what the the client temperature is and what the client needs are so they very much get that value of understanding 
the market. So it's the market insight in FS. Yes. Practitioner-led, and it's the outcome risk-reward type gig. And bottom line is, you know, at the top end, our, our, our consultancy day rates aren't at the contractor level, but they're not also at the same level that some of the big consultancies would place some of their senior people. So their partners would be probably placed at a higher day rate than we would probably place some of our senior people like myself. That's amazing. You talked about client needs, and I found that sometimes clients, and I think we had this experience some time ago when we were trying to do some work for one of the FS companies there, you know, and um, you have you have some clients that are not clear or don't know what they want. They have an idea of what they want to achieve, but don't know how to go about it or know the right fit for that, you know, um, for that piece of work. How do you go about, you know, presenting yourself, your company as the company that, you know, can provide that value or in general help the client see clearly to know what they want and the value at the end of it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, there's three things. Obviously, you've got to gain the client's trust and that goes with spending time with them. That's over Zoom, preferably face to face in the old world, and hopefully we'll be back to, you know, that that model of operation where you can get in front of people and build that that relationship and confidence and trust. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you know, we we have because of our focus just on financial services, we've got good benchmark and and intelligence of what's going in the market. So. If somebody's doing something, we can help them shape what they're doing without giving confidences away. Yes. Clients, but understanding what and how you should go about something in the market, because we've probably seen it before, because obviously we're we're talking to all the competitors in the marketplace. So that would be the second thing. And then thirdly, we've been there, seen it, done it, right? The bottom line is we've been probably in their shoes doing some of the things they're trying to do. You know, maybe the experience we personally bring can then help them with their thinking about what the solution will be. So it's it's an element of, of, I guess, using the market insight and intelligence as well as your own personal experiences, as well as obviously building a confidence that they trust that you're not just trying to sell for the sake of sell, but they get trust that you're, you know, doing the right thing and, and taking them down the right road and helping them shape it in the right way. And that comes with confidence because they don't necessarily open up as much when they talk about their problems if they don't know you in terms of some degree of relationship, which is where the big four succeed because over, you know, the last 100 years, they've built up lots been there. of you know, from the top down and therefore they've got a huge network of influence through that which gives them the confidence which is why a lot of clients say the safest method of of making change is bringing the the big consultancy firms in Mm -hmm. you see you just you know half answered my next question which was on the big fours and the question i was going to ask is why do many execs you know choose the big fours over the small you know companies the small consultancies and like you said Yes, they've been there for over 100 years. You know, I don't want to name it, drop a lot of them, but we know who they are, um, you know, and because of that length of time in the market, 
most execs, most companies tend to choose the big fours. But what I've also found on the flip side is that there have been cases where the big fours have come in to a large organization, like a large bank, a large investment bank. I've seen that in, you know, during my time as well, you know, working for some of these organizations that they come in, you know, present the case that they can deliver the piece of work. Six months down the line, the contract is terminated because the big four is unable to deliver. Why does that happen? Well, I think I think there's a, a number of reasons. One, you know, you, you, we can all get it wrong from time to time, to be honest, mm. in terms of, you know, when you shape or size something. I mean, touch wood, it's not happened to us very often or if at all. Um, but secondly, you know, you tend to see the, the people that really understand the topic in the partnership at the front of the the sales cycle, and then the team that's doing the execution potentially are the team that that come in that probably don't have the same levels of experience that the guy that sold the work to them in the first place. So you you probably don't get what you see when you originally necessarily buy the business. Secondly, I think you know if you look at if you look at the big consultancy firms, they take on some projects that are. Significant, significant in size. The bigger the project, the yeah. project, the bigger the risk, right? And um, just the law of averages, they're going to go wrong, um, and they're going to cost money to the client and and potentially to the big four consultancy firms. You know, so but the the I guess you hear about those, but you probably don't hear as much that goes on as actually does go on, and therefore. The reason people still buy them is they're a safe brand, seen as a safe pair of hands, and generally probably do deliver, right? Now, whether they deliver for in the right time scale or to the right price, and whether it's value for money, that can be challenged. But, you know, quite often the decision to do that is based on historical brand commitment. And we can all name, you know, occasions when when those firms haven't delivered and <laughs> Quite often, the bigger programs, I think. I think one of the challenges they get is as a consultancy business, you know, the value add of, of, of coming in and bringing that experience, you don't always see that full value from them in terms of when they're doing the execution. So I think there's a number of reasons for that. And some of it is just law of averages, big projects do go wrong, right? Yeah. They do, whether you run them in house or you know, you bring a big consultancy firm and we won't be probably bidding for the really big programs that they're going after because they've got the balance sheet, they've got the global presence and they've got the brand, right? They're going to win those deals between them and, and you know, occasionally there's going to be the odd one or two that goes wrong. I don't think that's typical. I think, you know, my experience is, you know, they 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 over overprice and over over you know supplement that with contingency so they tend to probably hit hit the bullseye a lot of the time but whether you're getting value for money and the best price i'm not sure but i think you get quite often a, a good delivery platform. absolutely yeah absolutely what's the biggest project you've delivered and Who's how sorry? did you go about doing it <laughs> successfully? <laughs> good, good, good question. Uh, you know, we've done a number of big projects. We did a big cloud migration in Canada, um, which was which was over a thousand applications over 
sort of an 18-month period. So that was a significant piece of work. We we was involved in the Deutsche Bank outsource deal. So, again... Yes, we, I remember that. Yeah, so we had a big team um, of, of people on site doing the, what I would call the RFP due diligence, running the process. <clears throat> then we got involved in the migration to DXC, and then DXC hired us to do the CMO to FMO operations. So we had a team working within DXC, helping them do some of the transformation that they committed to the client. So that was probably a significant piece of work that we was involved in um, as well. Um, there's numerous programs. We we helped Bank of New York in in BMY in uh in the States with a program around controls. Uh, we had a team working there of a significant size, probably for three years. So, you know, there's been a number of fairly significant programs and projects, all successful, I may say, not failures, which is good news. Okay. Generally, you know, if it's in one of the major financial centres of the world, New York, London, Chicago, Hong Kong, Singapore, Frankfurt, Paris, we're we have the capability to be able to execute pretty pretty easily and, and mobilize the team pretty pretty swiftly to be able to do that delivery. So fantastic. But that would be the two or three that that jump to mind. But there's been numerous other ones, I'm sure, that I could mention. Fantastic. Now, how has risk played a role in the successful delivery of these projects? I mean, let me, let me put that question. Let me let me you know, kind of merge two questions in one. What's the success criteria? And I, and I know you have, you know, and I, I, what I'm focusing on here is, you know, your delivery model uh, for projects and also risk being part of that. So how has having a structured approach, would you say structured or dynamic? You know, it depends on the project because no, no two projects are the same. No. Yeah. How has having a structured approach, like using a delivery model or an approach, been valuable to helping you deliver some of these complex projects and the risks involving them? Sure. Well, I think I think again, there's a couple of things that I'd focus on. One, within Tori, we have an independent QA process which looks at every project we're doing and, and kicks the tires on it, not just at the beginning, before the project's launched to make sure the time scales and the costs and the team are the appropriate team to deliver what we've committed to. But they kick the tires through the program and at the end they obviously go back to the client to get a client perspective on what we've delivered. So. That's the first sort of stream of sort of managing risk in a program, having that independent QA assessment done by people that aren't running the programs that are underway that we're we're taking accountability for. Secondly, probably over the last five years, the the lens on the risks associated in the market have significantly increased. So I would say five to ten years ago, when we was probably running programs, you know, risks weren't actively involved in those programs as much as they are now, whether that's at the steering committee or at various other points during the program, or even if they're doing an independent 
assessment, which is quite interesting because there's a, a major client of us who use us as the second line risk function to do their independent assessment of their transformation program. So they're actually getting involved in doing that assessment during certain gates within the life cycle of the program. So I think that's definitely a trend that's definitely increased over the last five to 10 years. And I think the, the last point is that if you look at if you look at risk today, you know, one of the big, big, I guess, regulatory drivers in the market is operational risk. It is. Change impacts operational risk. So the bottom line is that they've got to be all over any change programs now to validate that obviously come March this year, when all the firms have to demonstrate they've got a detailed plan around operational resilience in terms of what they're doing with their key business processes, when they're running big change programs, that impacts your business processes quite often. Even if it's an infrastructure project, it may have an impact on your, your key business processes. So I think that's another lens now that now comes into play with the ops res lens coming to the you know the regulatory framework. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that value. That's why that's why good. Now, talking about regulation, especially within financial services, which is where you um, operate most within, uh, the, the, the regulatory landscape has changed over time. As a not, you know, I mean, there are a number of drivers for that. You know, complex, you know, financial structures and things like that. How have some? How have you adapted to the to the, to the needs of your clients in respect to that? Yeah. So, so I mean, obviously, some of the drivers that are out there are driven by the regulatory people themselves, like operational resilience, like CSDR and other key things that have come into the, the regulatory space in the last few years. And we're lucky enough to be, be and have a regular dialogue with the regulators. So we get a good insight to what's coming down the pipe from a regulatory point of view, like Ops Resilience, you know, we've we've been aware of that and we was involved in dialogue with the regulator prior to obviously it becoming a very hot topic in the marketplace. So mm-hmm. keeping close to the regulator is definitely, you know, one component that 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 we we do to make sure we understand what's coming down and we're geared up for being able to to respond to it when it becomes a, a client need. Secondly, it's also talking to the clients, right? If you're, yeah. you know, clients, you know, if you've been around financial services and you walk into, I'll just pick a client, a JP Morgan, the number of people they've got in risk and compliance today to what they would have had, I don't know, 15 years ago, I should think it's completely off scale in terms of number of people focus on risk. Yes. And because of some of the events in the marketplace, you know, the Lehman Brothers, the Bear Stearns, the... Halifax, the you know you you the Royal Bank of, of Scotland. Scotland. Yeah, we've had our you know financial and and operational glitches significantly over the years in terms of of the position and the risk associated to what they're doing in the marketplace. So regulator has upped its game in terms of what it expects. So we don't get another Lehman's and we don't get another yeah. and we don't get another. Halifax, or we don't get another major crash in the marketplace. So, you know, and then obviously they've started to regulate more, although they're not there yet, you know, some of the products that weren't as regulated as they are today in terms of the market. 
So I think the regulators played a huge part in that and we stay close to them. <clears throat> and the events have driven that, I think. The, event, the economic events and uh, as well as the, the events in the FS market in terms of some of the firms that have gone under on the back of obviously bad governance, bad risk and overexposure in the market, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, that's, that's quite insightful. And, um, you know, we see these changes happening and, um, you know, it's important that, you know, organizations, you know, are aware of them, companies like, you know, yours, you know, mine who work in that space, small consultancies are aware of this because this is how your clients know that you understand their needs and can help them deliver on what they hope to achieve for their customers. Exactly. And, and it's not just risk from a, a firm going under. It's it's the whole money laundering. It's yeah. a risk. It's, you know, all of those, the financial crime that's going on now, which is... Yeah, it's, on a, it's on a different yeah. level right now. It's in a different level with, you know, the cyber attacks and the other. So it's not just the physical risk of, you know, something going down in the high street. It's the the all the other risks you've got around the markets, the 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 economy, you know, the cyber, the financial crime that's going on, the money laundering, which you need to protect yourself against. Yeah. You've got the senior management regime that you can go to jail as well if you're not seen to have the right control. So there's a whole balance here internally within these firms and they can't do it all themselves, right? Absolutely. Which is why businesses grow around the regulatory space. We've got ours, which is called, you know, our global risk and compliance business, which is there to make sure we understand the future market direction the regulators going in. We've got the capability to be able to support the regulatory and compliance change. And we understand, you know, what's going on across the market to be able to support that from a, a fintech and a tools point of view, mm -hmm. as important as understanding the regulatory requirement as well. Absolutely. And, you know, while you were speaking, because thinking about it, because with all with everything going on, and we mentioned some of these, um, you know, banks that have gone under, the Halifax, you know, the um, Lehman Brothers, you know, at the end of the day, the fallback or the ripple effect of that, you know, it, you know are the customers they feel the brunt of it because some may not, some may obviously not receive the service they want. Some may have difficulties as, you know, when it comes to pulling out their monies and things like that. And the economy as a whole, you know, does struggle, especially if it's a large organization with a triple A rating or double A rating, you know, that pretty much just messes things up, you know, and, uh, you know, just knowing that, you know, we are on top of our game in respect to regulation and understand that, there are, you know, there are customers being served that also um, need to be thought about from a reputational standpoint. Now, there are a lot of companies, you know, small consultancies who are who may be listening to this now and think, hmm, I want to be like Tory Global. What would you advise them? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, 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 <laughs> there's two or three things, I think. One, one you know, the customer comes first. I mean, we've built the business on the back of the customer. The customer is the most important thing to me, you know, the client. So, you know, we're very client-centric and everything we do is, is listening to the client, understanding the market and trying to package up the right proposition for the client in terms of what they're looking for. So I would say just, just you know, make sure you make the client a priority in terms of what you do. And, and I think that will hold you in good good stead in terms of being able to do that. 
Secondly, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, people, you know, unfortunately, markets go up and down, relationships go up and down, people move on. So you've got to keep those relationships going, but also don't just have one set of relationships that you're relying on and have your eggs in one basket. You need to have a few baskets, I think, in terms of making sure you, you've got a lot of different opportunities to, to obviously work with clients and generate business. And I think the third thing, get good people, right? I mean, you know, you build a business around, this is a people business. The world's a people world, right? It's not, it's all about relationships. It's all about, you know, the quality of what you deliver. And it's all about making sure you've got the right people. So, you know, small consultancies survive when they're one-man bands or two-man bands who have one client, but growing and scaling to a different level needs that multiple client base that basically trusts you and you can then rely on that. And it's not just all in one area. So from our point of view, we move from banking and investment banking to asset management, wealth management, the exchanges. We moved into insurance because obviously sometimes the banking world may not be in the best place when you have a Lehman Brothers event. And then you've still got the other side of the, the business that is generating revenue and can grow through insurance, wealth, or other businesses. So I guess it's the people. It's it's don't put your eggs in one basket and making sure that the client, you know, is looked after and you're giving him what he wants. I mean, I have a, a saying that, you know, when you're when you're talking to a client, you need to use your ears in proportion to your mouth. You know, I like that. Is, my message is listen to what your clients are saying. Don't try and sell them something you've got in your toolkit that you may not have. <clears throat> you know, it may not be what they want. So making sure you're listening to the client and you're offering something that responds to the client needs rather than what you think you may need. Thank you. That is such great advice for, you know, one-man band consultants, consultants and small consultants that are growing. It's important to have multiple opportunities because, you know, the, you know, the environment, the economic landscape, the business environment changes rapidly, like you mentioned. And um, not putting your eggs in one basket is something that is quite, you know, important as well. But you find that some consultants, you know, are single skill. They only know one particular skill how would that help them does that help or does that serve them you know, does that... i think being a specialist can help right because you know as long as the speciality is one that the market needs the the you know and I, it really is a problem and, <clears throat> and we have to make a conscious decision to to break out of it but quite often you you get sucked into delivery right and therefore you're not doing the business development so if you've got your eggs in one basket you've got a great client right and and you're working that client very well and you're making probably lots of money on the back of that client you know my experience that client will change over time and therefore it's not sustainable for growing a business it may be sustainable for you to earn a reasonable sum of money on a year on year basis and they that may be what you want but if you want to create a value add proposition that you can take to market as a business either you know, I have a list on the, the the exchanges or an event for yourself in the future that gives you multiples. You need to create a proper business, proper foundation, and you have to break away from, you know, that short-term 
earning uh, hopefully a, a reasonable sum from the client. The client's happy, you're happy, but it's not a business growth strategy. Your growth strategy is putting time and effort into, into business development and creating new clients. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, Martin. You, you know, this short few minutes have been so valuable. I found it valuable myself, and I'm sure listeners are going to find it really valuable as well. To wrap things up, I'm going to ask you my usually last questions. Okay. And I call this the superhero question. Okay. <laughs> Who's your favorite superhero, fictional uh, or non-fictional, and why? Okay. Well, it's Batman. Batman. Everyone is going for Batman. Why? Because <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, Batman was the, the, the thing that was on the telly every week. There was a series, and I loved it, right? So so the other one was Thunderbirds, but there's probably not a superhero there, right? <laughs> yeah, so um, why Batman? I mean, does that uh, reflect you in any way? No, not really. Um, if you said to me who was... Who would be people that, that I really admired in the world? I can give you three very easy answers. Churchill. Let's hear that. Yes. Mandela, because he created South Africa as it is. And Margaret Thatcher, because she did all the things that I loved about a conservative leader. She led. I know a lot of people hate her, but I loved her. Margaret yeah. Thatcher, Churchill. And, and Mandela. Della, that's it. Every Amazing. Day. They are real life superheroes, and I love those answers because these people are phenomenal people that um they have made an impact and have they have brought value to society in their own way. And you know, we have what we have today as a result of their their, their efforts. Thank you for sharing that. Now, if people want to reach out to you and you know want to work with you, how can they find you? Yeah, so you can you can get me on my email, martinharvey at torryglobal.com, which is T-O-R-I, global.com, all one word, and Martin Harvey, one word, or or dot in between the Martin and Harvey. That's T-I-N, not, not, not Y-N. So basically, yeah, just email me or or if you if you if you wanna you wanna just reach out to the Tory website, there's a contact information if there's general information people want to hear thank you so much martin it's been a fabulous session thank you so much and thank you for spending the time i know you're really busy and um it's friday thankfully so friday afternoons is always quieter oh that's good (laughs) that's good then you know i think all the clients go to bed or they go home or (laughs) they've switched off for the week or maybe a half day for them (laughs) or maybe a half day yeah exactly so that's yeah, so um, do take, you know, take your time and, you know, rejuvenate yourself for next week. We'll see all stats all over again. Exactly. Cheers. Lovely. Fantastic. Thank yes. you so much, Martin. Thank you. Bye-bye. Fantastic. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode with Martin Harvey. Do you remember the three things you can do to build a credible business? This episode is one to save in your favorites so you can listen to it over and over again because of the valuable insight Martin and I have shared with you on the show today. New shows drop every week so make sure you click the follow or subscribe button to be notified when they are released. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch full video episodes of some of our podcasts. I am your host, your risk champ, Chizubele Gudo, here on the School of Risk podcast. Until next time, take risks and grow rich.